Today's episode of the Crawford Talks is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome in. It is the Crawford Talks, an Astros podcast brought to you by The Athletic. He is the Astros beat writer uh, for The Athletic, Jake Kaplan. I'm Mike Meltzer. Jake, I feel like I've actually established a a bit of a rhythm during this uh, quarantine. How are you feeling, man? I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, Hanging in over here. Um, Excited for today's episode. I think it's going to be a good one uh, in a few minutes here. We are going to talk to Robert Ford, who is the long time, medium time, I'm not sure, uh, pretty long time, uh, Astros radio broadcaster. Um, I think his first year was 2013, so that, that's a good chunk of time that he's been he's been in Houston. Um, so excited for that conversation. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, haircuts. Is that right? That's right. Uh, I tried to give myself a haircut, and I'll defend what happened by saying I don't think I had the right equipment slash I don't think I used it in the right way and properly like cleaned it and everything. But my first my first attempt at a haircut, Jake, was an utter abomination, just a complete abomination and a disgrace like i'm talking to the level of even me like i you know like i'm i'm nobody but i would not even go to like i wouldn't even wear a mask and go to a store with the kind of haircut that i was sporting a couple nights ago but i was able to thankfully like fix it up to now where it looks i think relatively acceptable thankfully so this this twitter this person on twitter who posted this photo from you at, at heb that's not you with this awful hair no that, that that is not me no i, I have actually not <laughs> stepped foot in heb for like eight weeks because i'm too scared because i feel like there'll be too many people <laughs> um yeah this i had it's so funny we had the same experience a similar experience on the same week i did the same thing uh early uh tuesday or wednesday of this week i, I the days escape me but I attempted to give myself a haircut as well uh, with uh, not the best equipment, and it looks terrible. So I, unlike you, have not gotten it fixed up and um, not sure how I will, if I will. I might just wait for it to grow back and and wear a hat every time I go outside. But (laughs) um, yeah, it just kind of happened. I was was working on the beard, uh, which has been a project of mine lately, and... Said, you know, I wonder what will happen if I uh, buzz the side of my my head, and and immediately regretted it. Did you uh, did you watch any of these YouTube tutorial videos before you tried? No, no, not at all. I'm really very impulsive and just kind of do things sometimes. So, what did you think was going to happen? Like, you were like, I'm just going to try this and just like see who works out. I was just kind of hoping, yeah, I was just kind of hoping I wouldn't look like a, a mushroom, um, but I do so. Uh, it's going to be a hat, hat wearing season for a while here. Um, got it. You know, if I have to do any like zoom interviews, I don't know what I'll do. Hopefully if anyone's listening to this and wants to have me on a zoom interview, uh, either don't or let me wear a hat. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I was thinking like I'm, I'm at the point where like I, basically what I have to give the audience a sense is I, I'm like real, real tight uh, on the sides. Like I'm talking like a one and then I've got like just more hair on top. And, and I think that the separation right now between the sides and the top is like more noticeable than usual. So I think I'm like a week away before I'm at like acceptable uh, zoom in my living room level. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I think in a week I'll be OK for that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's good that this is a an audio medium and not not visual. Yes, right? I definitely agree with you with you on that. So I don't know what I'm going to do next time. I, I I think what I'm going to honestly, this is going to sound. See, here's here's the part where you can crush me. Is I kind of slash me. Well, I was using some of the same stuff that I would use to cut to basically not cut my beard, but basically to trim it essentially to do the hair, and it wasn't really working as well. Uh, because like if you watch these YouTube videos, not to get like way in the weeds on this, but if you watch the YouTube videos of people cutting their hair, especially the back, like people do it really well. Like the, the hair just starts coming off really quickly and, and easily. And it wasn't coming coming off like that. Like I was getting it stuck and everything. And so it was just kind of a mess. And so what I'm going to do for the next time is just order the right equipment on Amazon, even if it takes until like June to ship, because that's what seems like it's like is happening right now. So that that's my plan in the future, although it seems like things are going to open up like slightly in phases in Texas. Um, and I might be, I might be willing to risk my health a little bit for my next haircut in like six weeks. Yeah. What I'm going to do is just, just wait. So a professional can do it and not, uh, that's the last time, hopefully in my lifetime where I attempt to give <laughs> myself a haircut. Yes. It makes you appreciate the little things in life, like the people who cut your hair. Definitely. Definitely does. We are happy to be joined now by Robert Ford. Robert, aren't you happy? You don't have to worry about haircuts right now. I mean, I, I never really do. I, uh, that's <laughs> one of the beauties of having shaved my head for, for 12 years, or really one of the beauties of realizing that I was balding, which led to me starting to shave my head. So uh, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking great during this pandemic. I crack up seeing the pictures of people with their, their wives and girlfriends cutting their hair and how long their hair is now, but don't have to worry about any of that, thanks to genetics. Yeah, it's not, it's not fun right now for from that standpoint. But um, I guess if that's my biggest problem, I'm doing okay. Jake, you and I have tried it. Mine went disastrously poorly at first, and then I kind of fixed it, and it looks relatively acceptable. How are you doing on this front? Um, not great, but I also don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds about um, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't have to see anyone right now. So, you know, if I, um, if anyone wants to Zoom with me, I'll just wear a hat. <laughs> Fair enough. Robert, how are you uh, holding up during this, this quarantine period? What have you been up to? I, I've been holding up okay, all things considered. Obviously, you know, I'm used to being a much busier this time of year. Uh, but, you know, I've been, you know, spending a lot of time with, with my daughter and, you know, I've been able to do a few things uh, around my, my place, uh, which I moved into a little over a year ago. So I've been able to take care of some some things here, um, you know, and I think like everybody else watching some Netflix and Hulu and, and doing some reading and, and things like that. But uh, but yeah, I think I think I'm doing OK, but obviously looking forward to, you know, hopefully baseball getting going here at some point. And it seems, Robert, like there's been, especially in the last, I'll say, week or two, a lot more optimism from different places and different sources about that return. Would that be fair to say on your end? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, I know what, what 
the public knows um, in terms of the possibilities of when the season would start or if there'll be a season or any of that. Uh, and, you know, cause I mean, there's just, obviously there are all these scenarios that have been floated around, but uh, I, I just don't, you know, it's hard to know what, what exactly is going to happen. And a lot of it really is out of baseball's hands because it depends on, you know, how and when different States open up and, you know, various government regulations that, that baseball, you know, doesn't have any control over and really doesn't know, you know, how that's all going to play out. So, um, you know, I'm just kind of sitting back and, and waiting, just like I think everybody else is right now. Robert, you've done games for a while here, obviously at the major league level. And I think the working assumption for the, the public, for fans, probably the media is that when and if baseball returns, it's going to be without fans. And so I think people look and they start doing like back of the napkin calculations, how many players, umpires, coaches. Is there something as someone who's involved in some of the logistics that, you know, is there something that people may not be considering that you know about when it comes to just putting on one Major League Baseball game? Well, I think certainly it's really hard to explain even to the most diehard baseball fan, how many people are necessary to put on a baseball game who aren't, you know, fans or media. Uh, when, like you mentioned, obviously the players and the umpires, you have the clubhouse staff, you have team trainers, you have, you know, now obviously they're, you know, the major league baseball has monitors in each team's replay rooms. And I mean, there are just so many people you don't think about all the, all the, the camera guys that would be needed for the TV broadcasts and the people in the production truck and uh, things of that nature. Uh, so, and then, you know, is there going to be, uh, you know, there's usually media dining. So is there going to be, are there going to be people working that? You're going to have cooks, things of that nature. So, I mean, obviously you can shrink the footprint considerably of the people at the ballpark if you don't have fans there, but the footprint is still pretty large. Um, and it's, it's really amazing to think about just how many people are necessary to, to put on one baseball game. Uh, but so I think, you know, when you think about that, you know, people talk about that, that bubble or what have you, I think uh, the bubble's a lot bigger than, than I think most people would, would realize or really even understand. Robert, we, I think we'd be almost uh, more than a month into the baseball season right now, if it had started on time, you know, in these, in the like, I've lost track of how, how long it's been, six, eight weeks, however long it's been since spring training uh, got postponed. What's been your relationship to baseball? Have you been watching old games? Have you been um, – I know you, you told me off air you're not uh, much of a, like a practice rep guy in terms of, you know, doing like fake broadcasts to stay fresh. But like what, what's been your, your, you know, relationship to baseball in terms of how you stay attached to the game right now? Yeah, I mean, I've – I, you know, a few weeks ago, I live tweeted a, uh, an Astros game that I found online from, I believe it was 91. Um, no, actually it was earlier than that. It was like, like 88, 89 around there. And I'll probably do that again at some point, uh, live tweet, uh, an, an, an old Astros game. Uh, but I mean, other than that, I haven't like watched whole games. I've caught bits and pieces of, you know, MLB network shows, old games, ESPN shown old games, and I've caught bits and pieces of those. But I haven't really made a conscious effort to to necessarily watch old games. Um, every now and then I'll be puttering around on my phone or on my laptop and, you know, come across a, a highlight on Twitter or, or somewhere else on the Internet that, that I'll watch and maybe get me down a rabbit hole thinking about some old game that 
I broadcast or that I watched or that I remember for whatever reason. Uh, but I've really used this time more to just kind of cultivate other interests. Um, I, you know, I still love baseball. I still want it to come back. Um, and I'm still looking forward to it coming back whenever that is. But I can't really say that I've, you know, actively sought out, uh, you know, baseball content as a way to, to fill the void. I've just kind of filled it by doing by doing other things. I have a totally random take, and we can probably delete this if you guys hate this, but I, I, I have – now, this, this is going to be a rant along the lines of every, everybody Monday being like, can you believe the Pistons didn't shake hands with the Bulls 30 years ago? This is a disgrace. So I, Robert, I was watching Game 7 of the Yankees and Red Sox, the ALCS they put on ESPN a few nights ago, and I'm watching this because I wanted to like put myself back into that mindset of like, okay – putting Pedro back out there in the eighth inning, like how bad of a decision was it actually? So I'm watching this game and I watched the seventh inning and the Red Sox are up four to one. Pedro like gets, I think one out and then he gives up he or two outs. Maybe he gives up a home run to Giambi. He gives up like two, two singles in a row before he strikes out Soriano, but it was like a real struggle. And I'm watching this game and I'm thinking it even more reinforced. Like I was actually angry watching the game. I'm like, how in the world could he have put Pedro Martinez back in the game in the eighth thing? This is preposterous. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I um, you know, I haven't watched that again. I remember watching that live in, in 2003. Um, I was living in Kalamazoo, Michigan at the time, uh, working for a radio station, doing minor league baseball and other things. And uh, I remember at the time, uh, I was a little skeptical of Pedro going back out there. And Pe I should probably preface this by saying, Pedro Martinez is my all-time favorite pitcher to watch. Uh, when he was in his prime, mm. uh, yeah, I used to go... You know, I was I grew up a Mets fan in New York City, and I would go to Yankees Red Sox games when Pedro was pitching at Yankee Stadium. And like I, I probably saw him pitch in person about five or six times each time at Yankee Stadium, uh, because I was just such a big fan of his. Even going back to watching him pitch for the Expos against the Mets, uh, and I, I mean, it, and you know, especially I mean, it was the height the height of the steroid era, and I mean, he was just mowing guys down, and it was just so special to watch. But yeah, that game and that, that ALCS game in 2003, I remember at the time thinking, man, I, I don't know about this. And I remember uh, watching some of his pitches on a TV broadcast and thinking, man, his stuff just isn't as good. Like, it was obvious to me with yes. like the first couple of batters. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I seem to remember his fastball. It seemed like it kept, um, it kept tailing back over the plate, basically right into hitters' barrels. Um, and I know some people have said, because I think a couple of those hits, if I remember correctly, were, were kind of bloops and maybe a little bit lucky. But I, I just remember thinking, man, he's just he just doesn't have it anymore. Um, and, I, and I remember thinking that at the time, even before, you know, broadcasters said it or anything like that. Uh, so I was I was right there with uh, <laughs> up, uh, Red Sox fans um, with, you know, with their frustration with Pedro, although my frustration was a lot less because I didn't really I didn't really care who won the game. So we're now a Yankees Red Sox pod. Is that what's going on here? And also, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, Jake, I, I, here's my, here's my defense of that. It wasn't really a question. It was more of just like a take. I, I, I've had no avenue to release my frustration over watching this not random game, but actually sitting down and watching a game a few nights ago. I'm sure Robert would rather discuss this than the New York Giants draft last week, anyway. So we're doesn't matter we're until working. they play, Jake. Doesn't matter. <laughs> 
Robert, I no know one, you're. No one thought Lamar Jackson was going to be as good as he was. No one was talking that's about not true. true. Someone did, or else they wouldn't <laughs> yeah. have taken him one, in the first round. Yeah, but not not the so-called experts. But anyhow, <laughs> um, you're a big uh, prep guy, Robert. Were you ready to go for the season um, when it was canceled or postponed, or have you? Do you have more to go? Like once they say presuming they do, hopefully they do, say like, hey, the season's going to start on this date, we're going to have a month of spring training, three weeks of spring training, whatever it is, are you going to have more to go for for prep time? And how important is that to you uh, in your process? You know, to answer your question, it depends. I think, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I do a lot of prep. I update my notes on players, on other teams, and on the Astros, and my team notes, you know, I do that all throughout the offseason, and I, I, I have that done before I even – come down to spring training for games. Um, so that's been, you know, and you, I updated obviously over the course of the season when things change and their injuries and, you know, stuff of, of like of that nature. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's been kind of weird because I remember when I came home uh, after spring training was, was put on hold, I remember thinking, man, what do I do now? Cause I was, you know, I'm so used to, all right, I have, you know, I had some work, you know, I usually have some work to do, but I really don't right now. Um, now it could change depending on, uh, you know, with the various scenarios that are being thrown out there and maybe the possibility of changing divisions and, you know, doing temporary things. And, you know, because I prepare notes on every team, obviously on the Astros and also on every team, the Astros face in spring training and during the regular season. Now, if they wind up playing people during teams during the regular season in 2020 that weren't originally on the schedule, then yeah, that'll require a little bit of work. It won't be it won't require weeks of work, but yeah, there'll be something for me to do. But, you know, I, I don't really know that until, until this, this thing actually gets going and we, you know, we find out what's going to happen. Yeah. And to give uh, the listeners a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, as someone who uh, comes into the radio booth often to annoy Robert and Steve Sparks and their uh, engineer, <laughs> Matt Boltz, uh, Robert has, I think, so you have like a laptop up during games and then you also have your iPad to the right. side and the iPad is just filled with notes of, of players and, and teams. And most of the information comes from stories that were on the athletic, but um, no, not really <laughs> more, more so the Houston Chronicle and MLB.com. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Uh, I know the truth. Uh, and then you kind of just uh, cycle through the iPad as games go on, right? For when a new pitcher comes in, for example. Right. And I mean, I, yeah, so I have my, I mean, you nailed it. And I use Microsoft OneNote, which is like a, da- a database program that's part of the whole Microsoft Office suite. And that's what I have on my iPad. Um, and yeah, I, you know, and I update stuff during the season and, you know, I'll have up to date notes on, you know, those days, that day starting pitchers for both teams and things like that. And also notes. Uh, for, you know, each team, um, you know, it used to be, you know, when I was in the minor leagues and when I first got to the Astros, I used to do it all by hand. I had a little mini loose leaf binder with, instead of, you know, pages on Microsoft OneNote, little mini loose leaf pages on each player and each team. And that, <laughs> that and how uh, old are a, you? I'm, I'm older than you, Jake, is how <laughs> old I am. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, this is a, such such an easier process. I mean, for you know all of the reasons, um, and sometimes it amazes me that I even had to, you know, go to such lengths in the past with my little loose leaf binders, and you know, and then if I was on the road and 
forget, you know, somebody changed teams and I had, didn't have the page. I had to create it. It was, it was insane. But yeah, this is much better. Robert, at what point in your minor league career between Kalamazoo, between Yakima, and between Binghamton, did you get to a point where you're like, hey, like this is pretty comfortable where I'm doing this on an everyday basis? When did that stage come for you? In terms of the actual work, um, I think it really came my second or third year doing minor league baseball when I was an independent ball. You know, my first year was in Yakima, Washington. Uh, team in the Northwest League, Yakima Bears or Diamondbacks affiliate, 76 games. And then, you know, that year was kind of like a feeling out, like figuring out, number one, if I could even do this. Um, and, you know, I made so many tweaks and so many adjustments, learned so much that year. And then I went to Kalamazoo, Michigan for two years and called games for Kalamazoo Kings, a team in the that was in the Independent Frontier League at the time. And that was when I really kind of felt like, all right, I – Number one, I, I love doing this. And number two, like, I, you know, I think I can be pretty good at this. Um, and then when I got to Binghamton, I, you know, I was, you know, that first of all, getting to double A team from independent ball, you know, kind of told me, all right, yeah, obviously somebody thinks I have some ability. Um, and so I have a shot. So in terms of getting comfortable with my processes and with the work and whether I, you know, could do this and continue to improve, definitely started my second or third year um, in the, as a minor league broadcaster. In terms of being comfortable with where I was, um, I don't think that ever really happened until I got to the, to, to the major leagues with the Astros because um, I was always trying to, you know, figure out a way to move up. And, you know, I was always so career-oriented and so ambitious. So, you know, even though I enjoyed – I mean, I certainly enjoyed the journey because I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. And if they're always trying to move up, if you don't really enjoy where you're at, I enjoyed being in Yakima. I enjoyed being in Kalamazoo and Binghamton and then in Kansas City where I did, you know, pre and post uh, work for, for the Kansas City Royals flagship radio station. I enjoyed all of that, but I was always looking with an eye toward, all right, what's next and where am I going next and how can I get to my ultimate goal of being a major league play-by-play -play broadcaster? So I really wasn't comfortable in that regard until I got to Houston. In your years broadcasting in the minor leagues, who was the best player you saw? Uh, I mean, it's hard to pick one. Um, I'll tell you, the best pitcher I saw was Justin Verlander. Um, and it's not even close. Mm. And I saw some pretty good pitchers. I saw, you know, Clay Buckholtz when he was an uber prospect and was pitching great. Um, I saw Cole Hamels. You know, I saw quite a few guys. Anibal Sanchez, who I think people forget, was a huge prospect with Boston. Uh, you know, before he got traded to the, to the Marlins and made his big league debut with them. Um, but Verlander, head and shoulders, was better than any pitcher I ever saw in the minor leagues, and it wasn't even close. So as far as, I mean, I don't know if he was necessarily the best player, but definitely the best pitcher. As far as position players, um, it was, it's tough. Andrew McCutcheon was certainly up there uh, as a guy that, that I saw. Um, I saw some pretty good center fielders. Carlos Gomez was another guy who played for Binghamton when I was there. And of course, you know, played for the Astros as well, among others. Uh, he's certainly a guy who, who stands out. Um, Adam Lind, who I think a lot of people forget, had some really good years in the big leagues. He was definitely one of the better players I saw when he was coming up with, with Toronto. Um, so position player, it's tougher, but pitcher, definitely Verlander without, 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 without question. Robert, when you, at what point did you feel like, hey, getting to the major leagues and being a, a radio or TV broadcaster for a team was going to be 
a very realistic possibility? Was it, when, it got, when you got to Binghamton afterwards, before? When did that point come for you? I think when I was in Binghamton, I was there for four years as a radio guy for you know the Binghamton Mets at Double A, and um, I can't say exactly when when I got to Double A, but definitely at some point when I got to Double A and kind of got comfortable with what I was doing, and um, you know because I mean at that point it's if you want to move up, it's either AAA or the big leagues, and um, you know I it didn't seem to me that triple you know being a broadcaster at AAA was a necessary step. If I could just go to the big leagues, um, you know, it seemed like realistic to me that I could go from AA to the major leagues, which I kind of did going to Kansas City, even though it wasn't play-by-play. Um, but yeah, definitely in Binghamton. And then I, um, my last couple of years in Binghamton, I would send my uh, demo of my play-by-play on CD to uh, almost every single major league team's director of broadcasting. Um, and most of them either didn't respond or I got form letters back. As a matter of fact, I still have all of the, the various letters <laughs> that I've gotten. And because and I sent I sent my demo CD and resume and a cover letter basically saying, you know, if you know, if you have an opening, I'd be interested. If you you know, if you ever need someone to fill in, I'd be interested. Um, but, you know, more than anything, I was just looking for some feedback. And there were two or three people who uh, gave me feedback that I still use to this day. Um, and, uh, so to me, it was worth, it was a worthwhile exercise. Um, you know, even if it was just two or three people who, who actually got back to me and gave me something, something meaningful. Um, and I think at that point, uh, you know, hearing back from people who hire major league broadcasters that, you know, I, you know, I'm on the right track and, you know, maybe just need a little bit more reps, a little more seasoning, but I was on the right track was very encouraging. Robert, is there a, a single piece or two of, of advice during your career along those lines that kind of stands out to you even to this day? The biggest thing from a specific play-by-play mechanic standpoint is uh, I remember, um, and he's still there. His name's Rob Brooks. He's the uh, He's been the director of broadcasting for the Philadelphia Phillies for a long time. And uh, he was someone who was uh, you really helped me out a lot. Uh, when I was in the minor leagues and I had several long conversations with, uh, and I remember one of the first things he told me, uh, he said, you know, I listened to your demo and, uh, have you done much TV? And I thought that was a weird question. I hadn't done any TV at that point. And he said, cause your call sounds like a TV call. And I'm like, what is he talking about? And I think his point was I needed to be more descriptive. Um, and one of the big things that he said, he said, you know, you, he, he, he would tell me, he's like, you're in service for the pitch. And he said, baseball's a rocking chair sport. People need to know the pitch is coming because then they lean forward in their rocking chair when they hear you say, here's the pitch. And you say, you know, ball, you know, ball outside. Then they can kind of lean back. And then you let them know a pitch is coming again. And then, you know, because there's whenever a pitch is coming, that means there could be some action. Um, and that was a really good tip for me and something that I've used ever since. And I always try to make sure to let the listener know that the pitch is coming. Uh, obviously you vary it up. You don't always say it the same way. Um, but I think it's important to let the listener know that a pitch is on the way and that, Hey, there could be something happening right now. So you may want to pay attention. Have you ever, or do you aspire to broadcast on television? Um, not, I mean, I love radio, honestly. Um, I really enjoy, uh, just the intimacy of the medium. Uh, I grew up listening to a lot of baseball games and a lot of sporting events on radio. 
I, I, I love it. I mean, I, you know, I filled in on Astros TV a few years ago. Um, I remember it was a two game series in St. Louis with Jeff Blum and uh, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, to be honest with you, but I still love radio. The other thing I love about radio in baseball is that we get to broadcast postseason games. Um, yes, I would. I think it would be very tough for me. I know it would be very tough for me to be with a team the entire year. And then when they're playing their most important games, not only of their season, but of their history, and you're, you're, you're sitting at home or you're sitting in the stands. I don't, you know, I like that we, you know, I've gotten to call World Series games and ALCS games. And I mean, obviously the Astros being good has a lot to do with that, but I, I love having that opportunity. So that's a big draw for me. I do love, you know, I've gotten to do some college basketball on TV for ESPN this past season. I do love that. I, you know, college basketball is my second favorite sport to call after baseball. Um, and I do love doing, you know, getting a chance to do some TV and, you know, show a different skill set and, and do some things differently on TV that you can't really do on radio. Uh, but yeah, I definitely love doing baseball on radio and I'm not exactly looking to, to do baseball on TV. Yeah, you were a real, you were a real uh, globetrotter this past offseason. I mean, everywhere I looked, you were in a different college town. Well, the Big 12, man. It was it was fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was mostly Big 12 games. I did do a game at some tiny university in the middle of Pennsylvania. It's Penn <laughs> State. It's an agricultural school, I think. You may have heard of it. Um, but yeah, it was mostly Big 12 games, and it was fun. Um, you know, getting getting a chance to be around some of these coaches and and seeing, obviously, some of the, the, the talent at, at the Big 12 was, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed every minute of and worked with some really great people as well. Robert, I'm really interested in the preparation of, of a broadcaster for a team on a daily or just a regular basis. Can you kind of take us through a preparation? Let's say the Astros are playing a three-game series at home Monday through Wednesday. What's your preparation like before that series? What is it like day-to-day during that series? So before the series starts, I mean, obviously I've updated notes in the offseason and I continue to update them as the season goes on with transactions, with injuries, things like that. Uh, and when we're about to play, when the Astros are about to play a series, so let's say the Astros are playing a series right now against Oakland and their next series is against the Angels. Well, while the Astros are playing their series against Oakland, I'm already reading articles in the you know, papers in LA and Orange County about the Angels, so I can kind of get an idea, basically a series ahead of, you know, what what maybe to look for, what's going on, what are some day-to-day things that are happening, because I think what we're doing when we do these series is, with uh, you know, with other teams, we're basically just getting a snapshot of them at that time, so, uh, and that snapshot can look different depending on when you play them, uh, and also what's going on with, with the team you're broadcasting for, so uh, I like to kind of get that snapshot uh, by looking at what has been going on in the series before and what are the the major stories and and, and the the major news that's happening. So then once that series starts, um, you know, I'll get to the ballpark usually about two two thirty for a seven o'clock game. Um, you know, I'll update. Uh, you know, we get stat packs with you know all the the day statistics and league leaders and things, and I take out each team's stat pages and I mark it up with league leaders uh, on that team and other notes and you know, slumps and streaks and, and things of that nature. Um, I always try to go to the other team's manager's uh, pregame media session. And that kind of goes back to what I was talking about before about, you know, you're, you're getting a snapshot because I want to hear what that team's beat writers are asking 
their manager and what that manager was talking about. And, you know, you often glean things that you can use on the broadcast. Some managers, obviously, you get more out of than others. And, you know, there are a handful of managers who I know well enough where maybe even after their media session or before, I may be able to even ask them about something that may not have been brought up in their media session because it's something that, you know, all the beat writers already know. So it's not necessarily, you know, new news that they're going to be asked about on a daily basis. Um, then I also like, you know, getting information, talking with the other team's broadcasters, um, talking with some of the other team's beat writers, maybe if they're players on the other team that I'm familiar with because they played with the Astros or, or what have you. Um, I think it's more just information gathering. I think that's the business that we're in uh, when you do play-by-play. It's all about just gathering as much information as you can and figuring out what you can use and, and how to uh, assemble it in a way that it's easy to access when, when you really need it. Um, so that's, I mean, that's really what, what my, my days are about during the season. And I would note also that you are usually, uh, one of the first people to the park on the road and maybe at home too, in terms of like the media core covers the team or is around the team. Um, I usually, I'm thinking of like running into you in the street in Seattle where I'm going to get lunch and you're, you're on your way to Safeco field already or such a, such a, such a slacker, such a slacker. Uh, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, you know, honestly where that comes from for me is I like, I've always been one of those people. I like to ease into my day. I don't like to rush. So if I get there, I mean, I could get to the ballpark at, at three or three 30, but then I'd feel like, and I've done that before, but I feel like I'm kind of rushing and, uh, you know, it's, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't feel like I, I can kind of ease into my day. And also if I get there early, you know, sometimes, you know, some days for whatever reason, I might wind up spending a half an hour talking with a beat writer or another team's broadcaster or something. And if I get there at three, three thirty, then it's like, oh man, I just wasted a half hour that I could have used doing something else that I need to do to get ready for the game. But, you know, I get there at two and maybe I spent a half hour talking with somebody, then it's like, oh, well, that's no big deal. I still have plenty of time to do, you know, whatever it is I need to do. You obviously, as Mike and I also do, work in a medium where um, there are always people uh, critiquing uh, your style or your work or uh, your word choice. Uh, and that comes with the job. It comes with the writer, a writer's job, a broadcaster's job. Uh, it's something we all understand. But I, I think everyone deals with um, – you know, reader, listener, fan criticism differently. How, how do you, when say someone on Twitter is critiquing your broadcasting style or a call, how do you uh, deal with that personally? So, well, I'll, I'll take you back to when I was in Kansas City. When I first got to Kansas City, I was working for the Royals flagship station. Uh, and that my first year there was 2009. And that was my first year covering a, a big league team on a daily basis. Even though I didn't travel, I was at all the home games and still did shows for the road games and watched all of those. Um, and there was a columnist in Kansas city. He was really a blogger. He had had a newspaper column at one time, but he was a blogger. Um, and, uh, his name was Greg Hall. I actually found out he passed away a few months ago, but he used to blog about Kansas city, uh, sports talk radio. Um, and he'd have quotes and he would offer his critique on things guys said, and he would obviously focus more on the, the talk shows, but he would, you know, talk about the Royals pregame and postgame show. And I was a new guy in town and uh, still had a lot to learn about talk radio and, and, and broadcasting in general. And I remember when I first got to Kansas City and I, you know, a, um, somebody that I work with told me about his column and 
you know, he mentioned me in it and was pretty critical of me. And I mean, and, on, and some of it was certainly deserved at that time. Um, and uh, that was the first time that I remember being really criticized publicly like that. Um, and you could say, well, it was just a blog and it was mostly read by people who were in the industry, but it definitely hurt. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, well, you know what? This is what you want to do. So if you want to be in the big leagues, you're going to have to deal with this and you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with criticism. And that was a key moment for me. And, um, you know, I never met Greg. We would correspond from time to time on Twitter and everything. And he was actually very complimentary of me um, when he when I got to Houston and uh, he heard he got a chance to hear some of my Astros play by play my first couple of years. And he actually tweeted me and was very complimentary, which I certainly appreciated. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, and then, you know, you, I remember I first got on Twitter my first year in Kansas City, and obviously that's another avenue. Um, I think my approach is to be honest. Um, I think that, you know, you, you always want to be careful about feeding the trolls, as they say, but I also feel like it's important. You can diffuse a lot of things, I feel like, if you just let people know that you're an actual person. Um, so that's why, and I know Jake, you've seen this on, on Twitter where, you know, someone will tweet me something negative or a backhanded compliment or something snarky and I'll reply to it, um, and acknowledge it and, you know, kind of poke fun at myself or, you know, poke fun at the situation or, or something like that. And I think what that does is I think it helps kind of diffuse those situations. And I mean, I've had people that I've done that, or I'll respond to them, maybe not, you know, quote tweet it, but respond to them and you know, sometimes they'll be like, "You well, no, 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 that's not really what I meant. And I mean, I think it's funny because it's one of those things where I think sometimes people think, oh, I can just throw this out here and it's in a vacuum and they'll never see it and they don't care and, you know, all that. But like, I think when you let people know that, hey, you're a person and, you know, you have feelings too and you have thoughts as well, I think that can diffuse a lot of that. Um, and I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you shouldn't, I mean, my personal rule with social media is I don't. I wouldn't put anything on social media that I wouldn't say to that person. I mean, that's just my own personal rule. Um, so, and I think a lot of people obviously don't follow that. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of people obviously say things on Twitter and social media that they would never say if that if they got confronted by that person or if that person was standing right next to them. Um, and so I, I just, you know, I like to, and for me, it's, you know, it's a way to have fun. I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with people criticizing me. I think that's part of it. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's, you know, I learned something. I'm like, huh, I never thought of that. Or, you know, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to the way I say this or the way I do this. Um, but sometimes it's just, you know, it's just being negative to be negative. Um, but I, you know, it's people's right. And, um, you know, they, you know, certainly any, you know, that's, you kind of put yourself in that position when you're, you're, you're kind of public facing and I, and I've accepted that, but, you know, I, I like to have fun with it and, the vast majority of stuff that I see on social media is neutral or positive. So um, I always try to remember that too. Robert, over the course of your career in baseball, so since you graduated from Syracuse in, in 2001, uh, you, we've obviously had an analytics revolution. People, teams are, this is obvious to say, just so deep into the statistics. From a broadcasting standpoint, how much of that can you put onto the radio on the air without overwhelming the audience. What do you do with the balance on that one? Well, I think it starts with understanding that uh, statistics 
in some ways, you know, they're more detailed and all that, but in, in a lot of ways they haven't changed. Um, and I, and what I mean is, uh, obviously there are a lot more numbers out there, but you know, certain things are still true. You can't evaluate a player based on one statistic or a team based on one statistic. Uh, you know, there always needs to be some context. There always needs to be, you know, multiple numbers. Like I can tell you a guy's wins above replacement, but you know, how many games did he play and where does that value, where is the, where is that value derived? Is it derived a lot from his defense? Is it derived from the fact that he gets on base? Is it derived from power? So I think that's something that's important to remember is that there's no one number that will totally tell you everything you need to know about a, a player in a given situation or in a given year. So I think that's where I start. In terms of how you use numbers, I, I mean, I love that there's all this information and all these different ways to look at the game and all these advanced metrics and we have access to StatCast and, and, and things like that. Um, I think the biggest challenge is coming up with timely numbers. So I love, some of my favorite moments as a broadcaster are when I have a real timely statistic. Like say somebody comes up with the bases loaded and I immediately have, hey, this guy is one for his last 20 with the bases loaded or, you know, is, a, you know, a 400 hitter in his career with three grand slams with the bases loaded. Um, and then you look even more prescient when that trend continues or when they completely buck that trend. Um, it, it just makes you feel even better uh, because, you, you know, you've just gave you've just given some meaningful context to a situation um, and, and to a particular player. Uh, or, you know, things with pitcher, batter pitcher matchups, uh, when batters are, you know, really good or really terrible against a certain pitcher. Um, I, you know, that stuff, that, th those are the things that I, I really like the most. Um, I think the other thing that you always have to keep in mind with a lot of the advanced metrics is obviously there's more understanding of what a lot of them mean. But I think that when you introduce certain ones, you have to be ready and have time to explain what they mean. So if I'm going to bring up, say, fielding independent pitching and compare someone's FIP to their ERA, I have to be ready to explain what that means and why yep. when a pitcher's FIP is higher than their ERA or when it's lower than their ERA, like what that actually means and, and why that matters. And also, I think, you know, you need context and all right, well, this guy's FIP is 30 points lower than his ERA. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's the second biggest differential in baseball. All right, well, then now, now, you're, now you're getting somewhere. Now you're giving me some context. Um, and I, I think the context is so important, whether it's a game situation or context with how someone is relative Robert, to the rest of the league. Robert, you mentioned early in the conversation that you've been reading a lot and watching a lot of Netflix during uh, this quarantine period. Give us one recommendation of a book you've read lately that you really like and also uh, something to watch on Netflix uh, this weekend, perhaps. All right. Um, well, and I, I'll, I'll just, I'll just put, I've watched Tiger King and you know, I just, just cause I know that's like the big <laughs> question, right? It's uh, who's watched Tiger King. I've seen it. I saw the after show. I enjoyed it. All those people are nuts. So I'm just going to get that out there. That's not my recommendation. Um, I'm a big documentary person and uh, I, I, I've always loved documentaries. I prefer them even more than movies that are based on a true story. I like hearing the actual interviews from people who were involved and who have insight and, into given situations. Um, my favorite documentary that I've seen since 
uh, all this, you know, started was uh, there's a really good Netflix documentary that came out last year on Miles Davis, so the uh, you know legendary uh, jazz trumpet player, um, fascinating guy, really interesting life, uh, you know, a, a genius musically. Um, and I mean, if, even if you don't know much about jazz, I think most people know who Miles Davis is and have at least heard of him and may even be familiar with some of his music. Uh, but just, you know, really interesting guy had, you know, someone who reinvented himself a bunch of different times, someone who had a lot of personal demons and dealt with addiction and, and various things. But I thought it was really good. And I, I can't remember the name of it, but it's I mean, obviously, if you search for Miles Davis on Netflix, you'll find it. But really good documentary. Um, as far as books, I've read a few really good books. Um, the I'll give you I'll give you two recommendations because I do I read baseball books and non-baseball books. The best baseball book I've read during this time, I read um, David Cohn's book that he wrote with Jack Curry, a longtime sports writer called Full Count. Um, and there are a lot of athletes, memoirs and, and autobiographies out there. And a lot of them, frankly, aren't, aren't particularly good because they're not very insightful. But what makes this one different, and it doesn't surprise me knowing what I know about David Cohn. And, you know, he does some broadcasting for the Yankees and I've gotten to know him and I grew up watching him as well. Um, it's very insightful. He's very honest about his career. He's very honest about some pretty public uh, missteps that he had um, on and off the field. And I thought it was one of the more insightful athlete autobiographies that, that I've read. Um, so that's a baseball recommendation. Non-baseball recommendation. I love the Supreme Court. I am fascinated by it. I'm a Supreme Court dork. Hmm. I can always name all. <laughs> I, I always know who all nine of the justices are. Um, I've read uh, Bob Woodward. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, a lot of people know, you know, from you know, Watergate and, and, you know, he's had a, a legendary career as a journalist and a writer. Um, he wrote a book in the 70s called The Brethren, and it was really the first book to kind of take an inside look at the Supreme Court and actually uh, taught, you know, he talked to a lot of the justices and a lot of the, the clerks who work with justices to get insights on on some of the key cases. And he focuses on the early and mid 70s, um, which were the first few years of uh, the Warren Burger Court, who, you know, Warren Burger was the chief justice, and he followed Earl Warren after Earl Warren had, had retired. And Earl Warren, he was the chief justice through much of the 60s, and he was the chief justice for a lot of the big uh, civil rights decisions, um, and, you know, that, you know, and a lot of the decisions that changed uh, some of the laws governing First Amendment rights and personal rights and, and, and rights of uh, criminals and things like that. And then Warren Burger was like the exact opposite. He was much more conservative, and um, but you know there were still a lot of a lot of things that that happened. Uh, you know Roe v. Wade was during that time, and has a lot of good insight about you know some of the justices and and their thoughts on that. And um, just there there were just so many different things going on in the country at that time. And then uh, you know a lot of insight because mm. that was when Nixon resigned, and you know they had the case of the you know right. releasing the Nixon tapes. Um, and there's a good chunk of the book devoted to that. Um, and if so, if you're interested in Supreme Court and also in, in a student of history, I think it's a really good book. It, it's, it's kind of dense. It's like, gosh, that book's like 500, 600 pages, but really good. Um, <laughs> the Brethren by, by Bob Woodward um, is my non-baseball book recommendation. Robert Ford is the voice of the Astros on the radio, and we thank him for giving us uh, a few minutes here on the Crawford Talks. Robert, I know we took a bunch of your time. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. 